This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Today is the yard site, the 23rd yard site of the Rebbe, third day of Tammuz. And uh, we're up to letter number 31, page 236, the second to the last letter. I guess if you live long enough. <laughs> very special letter, very powerful letter. And um, he opens up with a phrase from Proverbs, Basharim, Noida Basharim, it's known in the gates. Um, unlike the previous letter, we started out, mudas, it's known, period, without any qualifications. Because there, he's, in the previous letter, he discussed a Talmudic passage, which is known to everyone. But here, he's going to discuss the Zohar, the Kabbalah, the mysticism, which is only known to the select few, Bashadim, those who are in the gates, well known at the gate. The previous epistle opened with the phrase it is well known because it cited a widely known statement from the Talmud. Here, however, the Alter Rebbe opens with a more esoteric quotation from the Zohar, which is well known only in more scholarly circles among those who sit at the gates at the city gates, but this was where the judges and scholars traditionally used to congregate. It is the statement in the Tukunim that the Shekhinah is ailing in the exile as it were. So it's a very powerful statement. It says that the Shekhinah, Hashem, is ailing. Hashem is hurting. Hashem is in pain. Hashem is sick. The Shekhinah is sick. What does that mean? That the Shekhinah is in pain. This anthropomorphism draws a comparison with a physical ailment, distinguishing, of course, between the holy and the mundane, i.e. bearing in mind the utter disparity between a physical ailment and the state metaphorically described as an ailment of the Shekhinah. So everything in this world is a parallel. The physical is a parallel to the spiritual. So we don't access the spiritual. We access the physical, the material. But from the material, we can extrapolate and understand how it works in the spiritual, because it's a perfect parallel, just like the body and the soul. The eye, for example, perfectly matches, parallels the soul's ability to see. And so to every organ in the body, the material is almost a uh, materialization, a manifestation, a projection of the spiritual. It's like taking a three-dimensional uh, object and projecting it on a two-dimensional surface. But it's the same reality, it's just, it's just projected in a different plane, a different reality. The material perfectly matches and parallels the spiritual. So even though we don't see the spiritual, but from the material we understand, it indicates, it points to its source. You know, if you take the material as it, you just take it as per se, superficial, that's an illusion. That's delusion. Anyone who thinks that the material, this is it, and what you see is what you get, and that's where it ends, that's where it stops, that's completely delusion. But if you realize that the world is not a delusion, because it says in the Torah, God created heaven and earth. So the Torah says that God created earth. It's a reality. Not like the Easterns that claim that this whole world is a Maya, is an illusion. God forbid. The Torah says God created heaven and earth. It's not an illusion. It's only an illusion if you make it an illusion. If you just take ego and physical and face value, then it really is a delusion. But if you see it correctly, as pointing, as indicating, as pointing to something that's beyond this, like a tip of the iceberg that's pointing to the iceberg, then it's very real. So that's the proper way of seeing things. Once the, uh, the um, fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, so his brother, they were, middle, they were sitting down to a meal, washing to a meal, 
and his brother, Rabbi Nachem Mendel, got all excited and he tells the Rebbe that uh, science, modern medicine just discovered that there's a, there's a vein in the back of the mind and when a person when a person wants to remember something, what do you do? You lift your head up, trying to remember. When a person wants to meditate deeply, you want to concentrate, you put your head down. He says, because this vein, the vein on both ends, on one hand, it's connected to the, the right brain, which is the brain of memory, and then it's also connected to the limbic brain, which is the brain of focus and concentration. So therefore, when you want to remember, you lift your head up so the, so the vein is, connects to the, uh, to the right brain so to retrieve the memory. And when you want to think very deeply and concentrate, you put your head down. So the Rebbe Rashab just finished watching, so he couldn't interrupt. He couldn't because he just made a blessing. So he, he just made with his finger, wait a minute. And he went to the table, made a moitzi, then he went out to the bookshelf and took out a Hasidic discourse from the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was written a hundred years prior to that. And in that discourse, the Mittler Rebbe writes, I mean, a little, a little less than a hundred years, he wrote exactly this, describing this vein. So the younger brothers exclaimed, wow, I didn't know that our great-great-grandfather was such a professor in medicine, was such a great doctor. So the Rebbe says, no, he wasn't a great professor in medicine. But he saw things the way they were in the divine, the way they, the way they were in heaven. And he understood if it's true, whatever is true in the divine is also reflected, in the parallel reality is reflected and projected in the material in the man who's created in the image of Hashem. So the Rebbe is able to see things directly in its true reality. And from there he understands how it is in the physical. <laughs> By us, it's the reverse. We live in the physical world, and that's our reality. That's what we can see, taste, touch, smell. That's what we can access. But we understand that whatever we see in this world is just a parable of the physical world. So to understand illness, what is illness in the spiritual, in the divine, first we have to understand what is illness in the physical. What is the cause of illness? What is the root of illness? And what causes the illness, and then we'll understand what it means that the Shekhinah is ill. The Shekhinah is ill. Um, also, the medicines, the cure, we also learn from the, 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 from the physical. So the two worlds are very much connected. So if you have a healer who not only can heal the physical, but also heal the spiritual, it's amazing that today, Modern medicine, the cutting edge, of, cutting edge of medicine, have discovered the psychosomatic aspects of illnesses, that illnesses are rooted in the spiritual, in the emotional, in the psychological, which is written in the Zohar. But the parallel between your spiritual well-being and your emotional well-being and your physical, this is science now opened its eyes and rediscovered this very deep truth that's been stated in the Torah. That all illnesses are rooted in something spiritual. So, you know, whatever it is, a person is very sad, a person is very angry, a person is very upset or disturbed, even though you may not know it consciously, but something inside, you're not settled, you're unsettled, and that translates into physical illness. You know, and that's why to cure a person is not enough just to cure the symptom, you also have to cure the root cause. You know, people come to the Rebbe about illnesses, he would tell them to check your mezuzah, start putting on tefillin, start keeping kosher. The person says, I have cancer, what, what are you talking to me about kosher? because it's all interlinked, it's all interconnected. The more vibrant you are internally, spiritually, and Jewishly, it will translate also into physical health. Because when a Jew lives a life that goes contrary, it's the antithesis to your own core and own essence, 
You don't act like a Jew, you don't speak like a Jew, you don't think like a Jew. You're going contrary to your own essence. Inside it causes a tremendous disturbance. And your soul will never be at peace. Your soul can never be at peace. Your soul can never surrender. It goes underground. But a Jewish soul will never, ever, ever surrender and never, ever be feel settled and never could make peace with not living a Jewish life. It's not possible. It may go underground. And that's why Jews are so angry and Jews are so upset and Jews uh, created psychology, invented psychology, and most psychologists are Jews and most of their patients are Jewish because the Jewish soul is very unsettled and all the revolutionaries for Jews changed the whole 20th century because the Jewish soul is agitated. When a Jew is not living up to their potential, when a Jew is not like inside like outside and outside like inside, if we're not living a life that's true to our deepest core, our deepest essence, which is spelled out in the Jewish law and the Torah and the 630 mitzvot, if you're not physically putting on the tefillin and you're not physically eating kosher, you're not physically living a Jewish life, crying on Yom Kippur and dancing on some Torah and studying Torah and doing mitzvot and doing acts of goodness and kindness and tzedakah, if a Jew is not living up to all of this potential, it creates a dissonance inside, a very deep disturbance. And it does not lead to health something in deep inside is very raw, something very raw is very agitated but if a Jew, the more robust we are, the more healthier we are, the more vibrant we are internal it translates into physical health robust health, long life it's not only a, a supernatural blessing, it's almost a consequence if your soul is robust and your soul is healthy and you're emotionally healthy and psychologically healthy and spiritually healthy, then it will translate also into physical health. So there's no dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. And this is something that the cutting edge of modern medicine is beginning to discover and to learn, something that we Jews knew about 38, for the last 3,800 years, as spelled out in the Torah, especially in the Zohar, in the mystical parts of the Torah. So he's saying here to understand what it means that the Shekhinah is ailing, first we have to understand where, what's the root and source of human ailing, physical ailment, versus being robust and healthy and vibrant. The cause of illness or health lies in the distribution and flow of the life force from the heart to all the organs. This life force being vested in the blood of life which flows from the heart to all the organs and the spirit of life from the blood circulates all around into all the limbs through the veins that are embedded in them. So he's saying something very, very profound there. He's saying that we know that the blood, the blood circulates and it carries the oxygen and the blood is the life. The Torah says, Hadam hu The blood contains life, the energy. Blood is a vehicle for the energy. Especially the heat around the blood is a vehicle for the energy. That's where the energy, that's the vessel for the energy, for the nefesh. The animating energy that animates us. But then there's a higher life. Ruach. The spirit. The spirit resides in the heart. When the blood goes through the heart... It receives from the heart this higher life, ruach, this higher form of life, which is then circulated throughout the whole organism, from, from the brain all the way to the tip of your, of your toenail. So it receives the ruach, which is a higher form of life than just the nefesh. He says the ruach hachayim, the spirit of life. So there's the nefesh, the energy, which is the basic which is the life force of any physical, including animals. But the Ruach, the Ruach is a higher form of life, which comes from the heart. And it circulates throughout all the veins, through all the limbs, through the veins, and embedded, embedded in them, and therefore it receives this life force, the spirit of life. And then it returns to the heart. So it's a cycle flows from the heart and then it returns to the heart. So it's a two-way street. The heart gives but then the heart receives. That's why the king is compared to the heart. 
Because on one hand, the heart is the center, is the heart of the nation. But on the other hand, the heart is totally dependent. Whatever the heart has, it receives. The heart has nothing on its own. It receives. The blood returns from all the organs. It receives everything, just like the king. The king has nothing on his own. It's what the people give him. They pay him the taxes and they, they give him everything. But then he is the heart and then he conducts the whole, everyone in the kingdom and everything in the kingdom is conducted by him. So on one hand, the heart is totally dependent on all the other organs. It has nothing on its own. On the other hand, it's the most powerful muscles, most powerful, constantly pumping. And thank God it doesn't stop till 120. So this is the heart. So the heart has strength. On the other hand, the heart is very vulnerable. The heart has nothing on its own. Just like the king. The king has strength. He's the power. He's the heart of the nation. He epitomizes and represents the whole, the whole nation. On the other hand, the king is totally dependent on everyone in the nation, on the nation. So the heart, it goes from the heart, flows from the heart, and then it flows back to the heart. Now, if the circulation and flow of the spirit of life is always as should be, and it's proper <coughs> as arranged for it by the fountainhead of life, then the individual is perfectly healthy. So this is the secret of life. This is the source of life. If everything flows properly, and there's no stoppage, and there's no blockage, then the, blow, the blood flows smoothly, right? There's no clots, there's no uh, hardening of the arteries. The blood flows like a child. The blood flows smoothly. All the arteries are smooth. Then you're 100% healthy. For all the limbs are bound together and receive their appropriate vitality from the heart through the circulation. So all of them are bound together because the blood circulates from one organ and from one organ it gets to the other organ. The same blood has to flow freely and smoothly from the heart all the way around all the organs. So it has to go from one organ to the next. So all the organs are tied up together. All the organs are connected together. You can't have one organ receiving from the heart and the other organ out of the picture. It doesn't work that way. The blood has to be smooth, flowing, 100% all around, from one organ to the next, back and forth. So all the organs have to be connected to each other. They have to be like one, unified. But should there be any disorder in any place, restraining, hindering, or reducing the circulation and flow of the blood with the spirit of life vested in it, then this bond which connects all the limbs with the heart by means of this circulation is severed, which would extinguish life or diminish, in which case the individual will fall ill and sick May God protect us. The interconnection of all the organs with the heart does also impact in the heart itself. It's interesting that the, while the body, what he's saying, while the body is so diverse, it's such a multiplicity, every organ is so unique and different than, than the other organ. What's the unifying factor? It's the blood. It's the same blood that circulates throughout the whole body. And the blood flows from the heart imbuing the ruach, the spirit, which is, resides in the heart, to all the organs. And it's only by all the organs feeling unified. Because the human organism senses, every organ senses that it's part of something larger than itself. The whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. The liver is not just the liver. The heart is not just the heart. The liver feels, I am part of one organism. I am part of one person. When you walk down the streets, you don't feel like you're a bag of 248 limbs and 365 veins and sinews and muscles. You don't even feel yourself, period. You're completely unselfconscious. If you start feeling yourself, you better check in to the hospital right away. A healthy person, you're unselfconscious, you feel like one. You don't feel, oh, I have a hand, I have a lid. you like one. Because that is the emiss, that is the truth. On a good day. What? On a good day. We are, we are one. We are one organism, one <coughs> dynamic organism. It's not about the liver, the heart, this, that, or the other. We're one entity that expresses itself in the heart, in the liver, in every organ. 
And that's expressed in the, in the spirit of the lave. This is the heart. This is the core. This is the center. The heart is the center. This is the center that unifies us. This, that sense that we're one. When you say um, that the organ senses, it's not like a human being senses, is it? I mean, it's, uh, it's more metaphorical. Right? No, it acts that way. There's no politics in the human body. You ever, you ever heard of a fight between the liver and the, and, the, and the heart? Or the right arm not talking to the left arm, like the Democrats not talking to the Republicans? There's no politics in the yeah, body. That's just the way it works. It's not only there's no politics, they all, work, right, they all work together. The blood flows smoothly from one organ to the other, through the other. It reaches through the other. It's like a total unity. How could it be so, such diversity? You know, everyone in America celebrates their diversity, but it's also a separation. This one is not talking to this one. The men don't talk to the women. The women don't talk to the men. The blacks don't talk to the whites. And the, the rich don't talk to the poor. And the poor don't talk to the rich. The one percent. It's such fragmentation. This is politics. This is ego. This is arrogance. This is delusional. Reality is like the human organism. Of course. It's beautiful that you have a right arm and your left arm. Each have a conservative and you have a, you have a liberal. And each one has a legitimate position. Each one has a legitimate point of view. And it's a good discussion to have. And it's an important discussion to have. The cup is half full. cup is half empty. No one is right. No one is wrong. It's two different approaches to life. Two different true approaches to life. Each one complements each other. Each one learns from each other. But there's, there's, there's no hatred. There's no friction. There's no tension. There's no... It can't be any tension. If there's tension, then the person falls ill. That means... That means the country is sick. It's not healthy. Not a healthy organism. The fact that Hillel and Shammai used to fight. They used to fight like cats and dogs. But they loved each other and they married each other. It wasn't, it wasn't personal. It wasn't ego. It was two legitimate approaches. Divine approaches. And, they, and each one borrowed from each other. As we learned earlier in the, one of the letters. Each one, each one complimented each other and borrowed from each other, and learned from each other. But they fought for their positions, and each one had a legitimate position. And it was a good discussion, important discussion, and argument to have. But there's nothing personal, there's no personal tension. In the body, there's no tension, there's no ego. It's not like, well, I am a heart, and you're a liver. How can I talk to you? How can I, you know, you're so different than I, you're so different. We're all, we're all in the same boat, we're all together. We're all part of the same thing. We're all expressing the same thing in our own unique way. But it's, there's ultimate unity, absolute unity. And that's the, only, that's, the, that's the cause of health. When you sense that unity, and you sense that I'm connected to the other organ. Each organ is connected to the other organ. Because my life force flows through that other organ. I need that other organ. And I need them to be them. The blood could only flow through the liver when the liver is a liver, not if the liver pretends to be a heart. So I need them. I have to celebrate their uniqueness and their specialty. And because they are them, the blood, the energy, the life force flows through them and I can receive my life force. I need each organ to be who they are. So we need each other and we celebrate each other. We're all connected. There's no friction, there's no tension, there's no politics, there's no ego. Jews and politics are not a mix, a terrible mix. He is talking about the unity of one Jew to another, the feeling of unity between one Jew and the next. Just like the organs, every Jew is an organ, and the Jewish people are one organism, and the Shekhinah, of course, is the heart. And in order for the life flow, the life force, the Ruach, to flow to each and every one of us, the prerequisite is that there has to be a unity between one Jew and the next, a respect and a unity. And each organ senses, I need the other organ. I'm not an isolated organ. Because if you're an isolated organ, you don't receive your life force. You can only receive your life flow only through the other organ, together with the other organ. We're all connected. I can't do this without the fellow Jew. I'm not isolated. And that's why in Judaism you have this unique idea, which is so unique, that as much as we celebrate the individual, and every individual is a world apart, 
And every individual, like every drop in the ocean, reflects the infinite. And the value of one individual is the whole world. And if there was one Jew, God can give the Torah, yet, at the same time, a Jew is part of a community. You need, if you have nine Moses, you don't have a minion. You need ten. So at the same time that we celebrate and highlight the individual, yet at the same time, we are part of a community. Just like when we daven. Something unique to Judaism. The Jewish shul, the synagogue, the way it's set up, is something so unique. Because usually when you're in the public space, the individual gets drowned out, submerged. Here in a minion, in a Jewish shul, when you have a mechitza down the middle, and you have the men on one side, the women on the other side, you have the ideal. You have a unique combination. Everyone is lost in prayer as an individual. You're speaking to God directly, quietly, totally immersed in yourself. You're not sitting with your family. It's not a social event. It's you and Hashem to the exclusion of everyone else. The whole world is blocked out. It's just you close your eyes, you concentrate. You're talking to Hashem, a private audience, you and Hashem. A relationship that transcends all other relationships, even transcends your relationship with your wife and children. It's your personal relationship with Hashem. At the same time, you're davening in shul. In the same building at the same time, the men, the women, the children, everyone is davening together. So you have the energy of the public, of the community, but the energy of the community doesn't, this doesn't extinguish the energy of the individual. And on the contrary, it highlights simultaneously. You have the strength of the individual and the strength of the community and the interplay, and each one enhances, enhances the other, just like in the human organism. That's the analogy he's bringing here. The human organism is very special because it's a, such a powerful metaphor, such a powerful analogy. And it's the truth. That's the way it works. That is the reality that he's trying to impress on us. This is reality. The human organism is a, a reflection of the way things work in the divine. This is how reality works. Every organ is unique. Every organ has to celebrate its uniqueness. Every organ is distinguished from the, the other organ. God did not make any duplicates in the human body. There's no other organ like this organ. And the contribution of this organ is unique and irreplaceable. There's nothing extra. There's no spare tires in the body. Even the appendix, now they hesitate before they remove it because they realize it does. it's not extra. It's there for a reason. And now we're starting to understand the reason. Everything in the body is there for a reason and a purpose. And at the same time, each organ depends on the other organ. Each organ is connected to the other organ. Each organ contributes something unique and all the other organs are dependent. If the brain wants to go to the library, it needs a healthy leg to get it there. In that sense, the leg is the head, and the head is the follower, and the leg is the leader. Every organ needs the other organ. How is that possible? To have such a diversity, and to have such unity, to have such individualism, individuality, and at the same time to have such a unity? Because every organ senses that the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. The liver, it's not just the liver. I'm not just the liver. I am part of this human organism, this living, breathing human organism. And I am expressing this absolute unified entity in my own unique way, but I'm reflecting that ultimate unified reality. So it's all aspects of the same reality. The whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. We're all part of something dynamic, something interrelated, interlinked, interconnected. We're all part of something larger than ourselves. It's more than just me. It's more than just my individuality. It's more than just my being a liver or a brain or a heart. It's, we're part of something bigger than ourselves, larger than ourselves. And therefore, even when the liver functions as a liver and it only functions as a healthy liver when it's unique and it's only a liver, not anything else, and clearly defined and distinguished from all the other organs, at the same time, all the organs depend on each other, lean on each other, learn from each other, strengthen each other. So this is reflected in the idea of the blood, the same blood circulating. Not only the same blood circulating to all the organs, but through each other. All the organs are connected, the same blood has to flow through all the organs. So if there's a blockage, if there's one organ that's blocked, there's a clot, God forbid, of block. The whole person becomes sick. Not just that organ is missing out. 
he affects the whole person. You're not feeling well. You are not feeling. It's not just one organism. The whole organism becomes sick. So every, every individual plays such a special role. We need the participation of every single organ. And we need every organ to get along with all the other organs. Otherwise, the whole organism falls ill. And this is the truth. This is reality. This is how it works. This is what we notice. This is what we see in the physical organism, which is a reflection. We're creating the image of God. This is a reflection of what's going on in the divine, how it works in the divine, how it really works in the root and the source of all reality. And that's how he's going to explain now what the, this is the parable, and from this we can understand what the, what the, uh, how it works in the divine. Precisely so, metaphorically speaking, all the souls of Israel are regarded as the organs of the Shekinah, which is called the heart, as it is written, the rock my heart, and as it is written, and I will dwell within them. The heart is the most powerful muscle, it's like a rock, it's the most powerful muscle in the body. It doesn't stop pumping how many times a day? A lot. <laughs> and this goes on and on, thank God, for 100 to 120 years. This is, this is incredibly powerful. It's Hashem, you're my rock and you're my heart. You're my center. The meaning of this comparison between the Shekinah and the heart that supplies all the organs with blood is the term Shekinah, deriving as it does from the verb Lushon, to rest or to dwell, denotes that the light of God abides in the worlds of Berea, Yetzira, and Asiya in order to endow them with life. Just like the heart, from the heart we get the Ruach, which is more than just the nefesh, more than just the energy. We get the spirit. So too, the godly light, the Shekinah, the revelation of the godly light, flows through all the worlds through, through the Shekhinah. So the energy, the divine energy that creates us and sustains us also has the Shekhinah which, um, which gives us that godly, that godly light. This life force is drawn forth by means of a prior investment in the souls of Israel. He said this must, this, this must come about through the Jewish people. The Jewish people play an essential role in this whole drama of the universe of creation. That's why the Jew is like the heart. There are 70 nations in the world, but the Jew is the heart of the world. The Jew is the center. And if you doubt it, it's <laughs> right. Just look at the, the Jew never leaves the front pages. The only thing you get that you want to agree on is when it comes to Israel. The focus on the Jew is just astonishing, incredible. A Jew sneezes in Israel and the whole world comes, you know, everyone's obsessed with the Jew and it always comes down to the Jew. I mean, there are hardly any Jews in this world and Israel is so tiny you can hardly even fit it on the map. And yet, the Jew is the heart. It's literally in the center of the world. This is the heart of the world. Now he's going to explain why this is in a very deep way, in a deep metaphysical way, why this is the reality and this is the truth, that the Jew is the heart of the world. The, the non-Jews know it. The only one who forgets it are the Jews themselves. Oh, God forbid, I'm like everyone else. Don't make a big deal about me. I'm not the heart. I'm not the chosen. I'm like everyone else. I'm, I'm more English than the English. I'm more American than the American. We were more German than the Germans. Of course, the non-Jewish world doesn't buy it for a second. And they know the MS. They know the truth. They're objective. We wear blinders. We can't see it in ourselves. But this is the core truth, that the Jew is the heart of the world. It just is. It's just the reality. You, know, you can't argue with reality. You, know, you want to put your hand in the socket, whether you understand electricity or you don't understand electricity, you're going to get electrocuted. Reality is reality. You want to bang your head in the wall. You know, the wise men of Oslo tried to fight this reality. Let's just normalize Israel. Let's give up Jerusalem. Let's give everything away. Let's give up Hebron. Let's give up everything away. You know, but you put your hand in the socket, it doesn't change reality. You bang your head against the wall, it doesn't change the facts. Israel is the heart of the world. Israel is a holy land. The Jewish people are holy people. We have a holy Torah. We have a holy God. And nothing in the world 
will change that. Not presidents, not prime ministers, not the UN, not the European Union, not the New York Times, <laughs> not, not the BDS movement. Nothing in the world will budge or one inch or one iota or change the reality. This is reality. And if you try to fight reality, it's like, it's like Don Quixote, you know, fighting, uh, get, tilting against the windmills. It's a fool's errand. You're just going to hurt yourself, waste time, waste money. How many presidents lost their prestige, lost their jobs, lost everything, prime ministers, because they tried fighting this basic, core, simple truth. The Jew is the heart of the world. And all those who forgot it in history, the Hamans of the world, and the Pharaohs of the world, and the Hitlers of the world, and the Arafats of the world, and the Stalins of the world, where are they? And the Jew never left the front page of history. So at this late date in history, don't be a fool. Don't fight against the current. Don't fight against Hashem. Don't fight against His Torah. Don't fight against the Jewish people. Don't fight against the land of Israel. It could be dangerous to your health. This is so because none of the created beings stand in any comparable relation to the Creator. For all that are, are before Him are esteemed as truly naught. Thus it is impossible for them to receive life force from His light and affluence. So everything comes from Hashem, but the problem is there's such a huge gap. It's like a Grand Canyon. There's such a huge gap, an unbridgeable gap, between Hashem and all of creation. Because all of creation is truly nothing. As if it was never created, as if it doesn't exist. Even while He's creating the world, it's as if He never created it. Because it's absolutely nothing. It means nothing. It doesn't add anything. It means nothing. And just to use a human analogy, in the world of ideas, what does the sense of touch mean in the world of ideas? Sense of touch doesn't exist in the world of ideas. Oh, I touched this concept. It's such a juicy concept, I can grab it with my hand. Or it's so deep, I can't grab it with my hand. It's a, it's a ridiculous and sensical statement. There's no relationship. It's not like, um, okay, this is infinite and this is finite. When you say something is infinite and something is finite, there's still a relationship. Because what you're saying is that, it's, that there's an infinite amount of whatever it is. And that's what makes it special, because there's an infinite amount. So even if it's finite, I can't compare finite to infinite. But within the finite, if I have a thousand or I have one, a thousand is much more valuable than one. Because it's something inherently valuable. But when you say that God, it's not only God is infinite and we are finite, so therefore what, there's no connection between the infinite and the finite. He's saying there's something much, much deeper than that. God is undefined. Not only is he infinite. There's no relationship at all between us and God. In God's world, we don't exist. It doesn't mean that our existence means absolutely nothing. It's like, it's like you're, you're introducing a sense of touch into the world of ideas. And that's only five degrees of separation. Our whole universe starts with ideas and ends with touch. You have touch, you have speech, you have thought, you have emotions, and you have ideas. Okay, so that's five degrees of separation, and yet there's no relationship, no connection between the world of ideas and the world of action. So in comparison to God, there's no relationship. We don't even begin to exist. Our whole existence means nothing. It doesn't matter if it's a great existence, the higher levels of consciousness, spiritual existence, angels, spirituality, mysticism. That's the problem with all mysticism. They completely miss the whole point. To God, God created heaven and earth. To God, heaven and earth are equal. Just like a sense of touch is nothing. We can all relate to that. Because even to us, the sense of touch is nothing in comparison to the world of ideas. So surely to God, the world of action, sense of touch means absolutely nothing. Its whole being, its whole existence means absolutely nothing. To God, heaven and earth are equal. They're absolutely not. God's essence is so undefined, so beyond the whole frame of reference of the universe that all the spiritual existence and higher levels of consciousness in the world of ideas and numbers and concepts and mysticism and spirituality and heaven of heavens and sublime and music and art, to Hashem, it's nothing. So this, there's an unbridgeable chasm between God and us and all of creation. 
So how is it possible for God to create the world and to sustain the world? There's no connection, no relationship. What's the connector? The mind. The Jewish people. The mind is nothing. The Jewish people. And that's why it says when Hashem created the world, it says, who did He consult with before He created the world? It says He consulted with the Jewish soul. That's why Jews are consultants. <laughs> Every Jew has a card as a consultant. Because this is the only reason why God created the world. This is the only connection. Why did God bother to create this world? What connection does God have with this world? A relationship does He have with this world? The only purpose is for the Jewish people and for the Torah. And in order to fulfill that purpose, he created the whole world, the whole universe. And that explains also why, if the whole purpose of the world is the Torah, why didn't God give the Torah day one of creation? He created Adam and Chava. He should have given them the Torah day one. Why did he wait 2,448 years until Revelation? But this was the whole purpose. Because at the beginning, there's only one reality there's no need for peace, right? There's only one, one reality. If you're alone, if you're Robinson Crusoe, who, who are you going to fight with? There's only one opinion. There's only one reality. There's one newspaper, one editorial, one reader. All there is is yourself. You're going to look in the mirror and start fighting with yourself. There's only one reality. There's no need for peace. When there's two people, no two people think alike. No two people look alike. That's a reflection of the fact that no two people think alike. Now there's a conflict. Now that there's conflict, now I need peace, I need to reconcile. So God created the world which appears to be separate and apart from Hashem. It's only then that we have the Torah. And the whole purpose of the Torah is to make peace, to reconcile between seemingly opposites, body and soul, heaven and earth, right and left, mystical and mundane, ego and, and soul, faith and intellect. And that's the mission of the Jew through the Torah to reveal the ultimate unity, to reveal that heaven and earth are really two sides of the same coin and really is the ultimate unity. That is the only reason God created the world. There is no other reason. This is God's vision, the Torah and the Jewish people. Nothing else matters. Nothing else means anything. Everything else is a means to an end. The whole world is a means to an end. Seven billion people, infinite angels, higher levels of consciousness, all the mystical worlds that the Kabbalah talks about. All it is, is a means to an end. What's the end? When a Jew lights a Shabbat candle, and a Jew puts on tefillin, and a Jew studies the divine Torah, Hashem's Torah, that is the end. There is nothing else. There is no other purpose. There is no other point. There is no other... That's the only reason God creates the world and sustains the world. So the Jew is the heart. The Jew is the interlink, the interface between Hashem, God, and creation. This is what, this is, that's why the Jew is the heart of the world. It's the center of the world. And the Goyim know it. Because without the Jew, there's nothing. Following this way, seems like we are the ones that need the correction, right? And the rest of the world is perfect then. It all depends on us, absolutely. We are supposed to teach the world also, but we teach the world first and foremost by personal example. If every Jew in the world lived up to the Torah, lived up to our potential, and lived a Jewish life, and fulfilled the mitzvot, we thought like a Jew, think like a Jew, speak like a Jew, act like a Jew 24-7, and we fulfilled all of the mitzvot, Mashiach would be here in a second. The whole world would be transformed in a nanosecond. Of course it's totally up to us, Absolutely. And that's what, that's what we were charged with that mission. You know, we are like the general contractors. And we subcontract to 70 nations. They have the seven Noahide laws, righteous laws, to be like Noah, who was a non-Jew, who was God's best friend, who heroically, single-handedly saved the whole world. Every human being is created in the image of God, all seven billion people. That's why we Jews don't proselytize. You don't have to be Jewish to be part of this whole divine drama. Everyone plays a role. Every blade of grass plays a role. Everything in God's world plays an indispensable role. We have tremendous respect 
for every human being because they are created in the image of God and they play a role. But we are like the, the heart, the general contractors that we have to teach and subcontract and teach everyone to fulfill their divine role and mission. So everything in this world is a means to an end. And what is the end? The purpose, God's pleasure, the ultimate purpose, the marriage between the Jewish people and God. That's when the world will reach perfection. Each human being will become a righteous Gentile. Can you imagine a world where seven billion people are living by the seven Noahide laws, living up to this code, universal code, living up to Noah's, Noah's example, and every Jew in the world living up to their potential, exercising their divine core and essence and living up to it in their daily lives. This is the world of Mashiach. This is the purpose. There is no other purpose. This is what it was all about from day one. And this is what it's still all about. And inevitably, this purpose will be realized. This is what keeps the Jewish people going and kept the Jewish people going. This is the essence, core and essence of reality. To become created beings makes nihilo into substantially and to be living subside, except by means of the souls. The divine light is first drawn down into the Jewish souls and thereafter into the rest of creation. The blessing which we recite follows the same order. Our God, King of the Universe, it is by His first becoming our God, whereby the divine life force flows into the Jewish people that he then becomes king of That's why every blessing we say, Baruch HaTah Hashem Elekeinu, he is our God. And only the Jew says our God. An angel can't say, God is my God. As sublime as angels are, they can't say, my God. Because, as we're going to say later, all of creation, including angels, were created through God's speech. The Jew is much deeper than an angel, much higher than an angel, much greater than an angel. The Jew comes from God's thought, which is internal. You know, the Alter Rebbe once visited the Misnagdashe Bashan of Shklov, which was the Bashan of the opposition to Hasidism. And he said that a Jew is an internal being versus angels are, are external beings. That's right, that's right. And angels are, so the, the city was in a commotion. How dare you slander the angels? You talk about angels like that, that they're, what, that they're a bunch of fakers, they're chitzenim, they're external, versus the Jew is internal. He says, do you have a source for, for the, such a statement, a source in the revealed part of the Torah for such a dramatic statement? Alter Rebbe says, yes. He says that the rabbis tell us that when the angels, the three angels, came to visit Abraham, prepared for them three tongues, a royal feast, and it says they ate. So the rabbis said they pretended to eat. They didn't really eat. They pretended to eat. So they were faking it. <laughs> it a fake, an external person fakes it. They pretended to eat. They weren't really eating. They're angels projected in the human body, but they were angels. But when Moshe went up to the mountain, to heaven, what does the Torah say? He didn't eat. He didn't pretend not to eat. He could have pretended not to eat. He could have had a sandwich on the side. <laughs> he really did not eat. When he's in heaven, he's amongst angels, 40 days and 40 days, didn't eat, didn't drink. So you see that the Jew, the soul is, is internal. The internal person is genuine. Is inside like outside, outside like inside. There's no fakery, there's no pretend, pretense, there's no, it's not external. Whereas the angels are external. So the angels, like all the rest of creation, were created through God's speech. Which speech is external to the person, in comparison to thought, which is much more intimate and much more internal. And this, and this thought precedes the speech. So even though the angels, so the, the Jewish soul precedes the angels, as he's going to say. We learn thought, speech, and action. Right, so the thoughts precedes the, the speech. Exactly. Right. The Jewish people are rooted in the thought, precede creation. The angels are part of creation. Okay. God created them. Okay. They're part of the speech. 
the Jew precedes creation. It says, who did God consult with? The Jewish people. So they preceded the creation. They were his consultants. So the Jewish souls are much deeper than even the angels and the sublime beings and the spiritual beings and higher levels of consciousness. The, the soul is rooted in a much more intimate part of Hashem, in his thought. But they were saying that in the process of creation, he created with speech without thinking. So it's always thought, speech, and action. We start with thought, speech, and action. So even if we were first, you have to think about them first, and then create them. Right, right. But they're, they're, they're rooted. So they were thought also. Right. But he's saying, but just like thought, he's just bringing out the point we, here. We that were just the firstborn, basically. That thought is, precedes a, a speech, and that thought is internal, more internal. Of course, the Jew is rooted even higher. That's why the Jewish people are called children of Hashem. But as we discuss in the second part of the second chapter of the Tanya, in the part one, you can listen to it in tanyaclass.com. For it is the Jewish souls that rose in his thought, i.e., their sources in his thought, and thus preceded the creation of the worlds which came about through divine speech. Mortal thought is internal and personal inasmuch as it serves the individual himself, whereas speech is external. Its purpose being to communicate with others. So too, Jewish souls derive from the internal aspect of godliness, while the rest of creation derives from the external aspect. And in order that the divine life force be drawn down into the worlds, which represent an external level of creation, it must first be drawn into Jewish souls, the internal level of creation. When we read it in the Torah, creation, I thought that it says, or the commentary says, God consulted with angels. Uh, that was after, after he already created. But this is the Medrash that says before God created anything, he consulted, why did he even create? It says after he created already, day one, day two, after he created the angels, then he consulted with them about man. But this is, precedes creation, even preceding day one, before there was any creation. Why did God launch this project of creation? What motivated him to create? He consulted with the uh, Jewish souls. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what we're consultants. <laughs> wow. I never, I never heard that. The Jewish soul is pre-existed creation. Of course. The Jewish soul is beyond creation. It transcends creation. <coughs> that's the point that he's making here. But finish, Hanji. Mm-hmm. Thus our sages. Thus our sages of blessed memory said, With whom did the Holy One, blessed be he, take counsel concerning the creation of the world? The Jewish souls. As is known from elsewhere, Jewish souls are thus so superior to the created world that God took counsel with them about the very creation of the world. So that's what he says, that the whole life force of this world, the whole energy and the whole life force, the divine energy that creates and continuously recreates and sustains the world, it all flows through the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people, this is the whole reason and purpose why God created the world in the first place. This is his, Hashem's thought. It's personal, it's intimate. And because of the Jewish people, that's why he went on to speak and to create the world which is outside of God, so to speak. That's a little tricky. We'll talk in the morning. Okay, okay, okay. You'll sleep on it. Any uh, questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah, there's nothing outside of God. Correct. What's coming outside? so to speak, that sense themselves to be outside. Of course, the reality is there's nothing outside of God. But God created them in a way that they sense themselves to be outside. The Jew remains connected. We're believers, the children of believers. We have that faith, that simple faith that's every fiber of our being and every bone in our body, we know Hashem. That's why the Jewish people are called the children of Hashem. Just like a child even a baby knows its parents, a young child, before it could even think or articulate or write or comprehend, the child knows with clarity and with certainty, with every fiber of their being, every bone in their body and their kishkes, that these two people are special to me. My mother and my father, you know, they can't explain it, they don't understand it, but they just know that fact and that reality, that truth. So too, the Jewish people are not just a nation of philosophers and mystics, that too, but first and foremost, we are the believers, the children of believers. We know Hashem. It's like a sixth sense that we have. We know Hashem in our kishkes, in our guts, with every fiber of our being, and all the philosophy in the world, and all the mysticism, and all the explanations. 
Don't add one iota to the clarity and the depth of our feeling towards Hashem. That's why we are godly people. It's in our bones. We're born Jewish, 100% Jewish. Every Jew is 100% Jewish, whether they know it or not, conscious of it or not, like it or not, deny it, don't deny it. It doesn't change the reality. The fact is a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. No one ever says a Christian is a Christian is a Christian because it's, not, it's a nonsensical statement. It's an, oxy, an atheistic uh, Christian is an oxymoron. But an atheist Jew is 100% Jewish, 1,000% Jewish. Because it's, it's your essence. In their consciousness, it's also installed the fact that I guess they don't really realize, they don't know why, but this is why they hate us. Because deep inside, it's our fault that the world is the way it is, because we don't unite. Very, very deep point, very profound point. It's true. They blame the Jew. There was once a great Hasidic master, a colleague of the Alter Rebbe, of the Melech He was like the biggest Rebbe in Poland. And, and uh, thousands of Jews would come to him to ask him for a blessing, for their health, for peace at home, for children, for this problem. Everything was ailing them. And he once said, you know why they're coming to me? Because it says every Jew is obligated to say that the whole world is created for me. And if I had my act together... Mashiach would come. It says if there was one righteous birth in this world, Mashiach would come. So they're coming and knocking on my door. It says, Elimelech, if I have a problem, it's your fault because if you would have your act together and you would be a good Jew and you would behave the way it should be, Mashiach would come and, and it would resolve all the world's problems. So if I'm ailing, it's your fault, so you have to help me. So you're right. It's a very deep, profound point and that is the truth. They are knocking on the Jew's door because they know that we are the heart of the world. And if there's any problem, it's our fault. So it's their funny way. Anti-Semitism is the Gentiles' funny way of telling the Jew, get your act together because we're suffering. Until you get your act together, we're going to suffer. You're not doing what Hashem wants you to do, what Hashem is asking you to do. You're so clever. You're going to figure it out. Hashem says, put on Philip. No, I'm going to be a philosopher. I'm going to be a mystic. I don't need to fill in stuff for me. Coming up with 101 excuses why. Just do what Hashem wants you to do. You want you, this is the whole purpose of creation. Get the act together and the whole world will be at peace. You know, during the Six-Day War, when they were being attacked from every which way, before they went I was talking to Lazy. Uh, so before they went into battle, they'd strap up. When they saw that the Jews were... They said, what are they doing over there? They said, no, that's some magic stuff. And they practically decided among themselves to be destroyed by the Jewish army. I don't want to go into the whole... Well, that, well that was actually a real they story. They saw it to fill and they said, wait a minute. That was a real story. Someone told us to the Rebbe that um, they, were watching, they were watching the enemy course, in Sinai. And suddenly they see that the enemy just is all running away. They, they like ran away. They evacuated. They abandoned their camp. And they chased after them. And they caught some of them prisoners. And he said, what happened? Why did you, all, why did you run? Yeah. So he said, we were watching you. And we saw, we saw you strapping this box on your head. <laughs> on your head. We thought maybe the Jews invented the secret weapon. That's right. So we looked in our Russian manuals. <laughs> And the Russians never, they, they, it wasn't even, even Russians didn't know about this new weapon. We were so frightened <laughs> that we just ran. So the Rebbe smiled and says, yes, this is our weapon. They were right, this is our secret weapon. But not only that, before the Six-Day War, there was tremendous unity. You know, two Jews can't agree. Israel has more parties than any other nation in the world. Yeah. Every Jew in Israel has his own newspaper <laughs> and his own editorial. Yet before the Six-Day War, there was such a unity when Aham Begin came together with, 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 with... Everyone came together. There was no right Jew, left Jew, left wing, right wing. I mean, they were expecting another Holocaust. They consecrated a graveyard in the outskirts of Tel Aviv. They were expecting 100, over 100,000 casualties. I mean, it, Jews all over the world were unified. And when Jews are unified, miracles happen. Like, the whole world was just looked up in awe. They couldn't believe it. Because that's the power of Jewish unity. See, crisis, crisis can't create something that's not there. Crisis reveals what's always there, what's always true. Jews are unified today. But unfortunately for us, it takes a crisis to remind us. When Israel was attacked two summers ago, three summers ago, yeah, yeah. with the missiles, Israel was so unified. 
except for a few Jewish Nazis, anti-Semites, BDS movement, 90% of Israel was like, it, was, it reminds us of the Six-Day War. We haven't seen such a unity since the Six-Day War. It was such a spirit and such a unity. Unification. There was no left, there was no right. I mean, 4,000 missiles against men, women, and children. This is a Nazi atrocious crime. Anyone who's defending them and criticizing the Jewish people is a Nazi. So, I mean, the, the Jews couldn't care less what they thought. I mean, you're out of your mind? I mean, are you sick in the head? Are you, you... So, so there was such a unity amongst Jews. It was incredible. It was such a spirit. Then they go back to fighting right. each other again. <laughs> <laughs> this class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.